When I was uh, in first grade, my mom married my dad. My dad's not my biological dad, but in every way that counts, he's my dad and always has been. My very first memory of him was a trip we took to Perry Lake. Uh, I think I was five, maybe six, and um, this was like a get-to-know-my-son day trip kind of thing. So the memories are vague and choppy, more like snapshots than any real uh, string of solid memories. But I can remember that there was a Paul McCartney song that played uh, in the car on the way there. I cannot remember what song it is until I hear it. And every time I hear it, I flash back to that moment and, uh, and I remember it. But that was going on. I was also, uh, I remember I was learning to read. And, uh, and so I read a sign that said, Pass with Care as pass with car. And since we were in a Jeep, I told my dad, you cannot pass on this road only if you're in a car. Um, and uh, for some reason that memory says, I think it was because he made fun of me for reading it wrong, which if you know my dad, you know means he liked me. But back then I didn't realize this. And so I was embarrassed. And so that memory kind of um, stuck a little tighter than some of the other ones. But I also remember um, once we got there, the two adults uh, sat on a blanket Um, on the beach and I played right on the edge of the water there were some rocks there and I was kind of playing right where the water met land and I remember screaming at the top of my lungs every time some water would splash up on me I also then remember my dad uh, encouraging me to go out a little deeper I can't remember if I was scared I can't remember any emotion attached to it I can't remember deciding to do it but I remember how cold the water was when it hit my chest that stuck and then I remember how buoyant I felt when the water was about neck deep. And remember, these are just, there's no narrative quality to this. It's just quick snapshots. The very next thing I remember is seeing the sun all warbly and wavy through the top of the water. And I realized that I could no longer reach bottom and keep my head above water. I have a snapshot of a boat coming by and a face like leaning over the boat and it had this dreamlike quality. The face was like this big and looked really concerned. Uh, And then the very next thing I remember is sitting curled up in a towel as my future dad was taking all the contents out of his wallet to lay on a flat rock in the sun to dry. I don't remember this event often, usually only when I uh, uh, hear that Paul McCartney song, but it came to me back this week because this week we're talking about an aspect of lament that is best summed up by the cry, save me. Save me. At least 20 of David's Psalms, he cries out for salvation. He cries out to be saved. It's probably one of his most quoted aspects because it so perfectly lines up with New Testament theology. This idea of salvation, especially amongst Protestants, because the Reformers were so concerned with the nature and process of salvation that it kind of became one of our uh, primary theologies. Uh, in Protestant New Testament theology. For the last 500 years, that's been our focus on what happens next. We spend most of our time thinking about what happens next. This life is really only important as a setup or testing ground for the next life. The real life is beyond the veil. Anything that happens here is only has impact as to how it affects that. That's kind of the message we send in Christianity today. This emphasis is so prevalent and so wired into everything we talk about that when we read the Old Testament, we can't help but read some of that theology into the Old Testament, into our Old Testament stories. 
we assume that Abraham, when it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, we assume that Abraham knew that being counted righteous meant that he now qualified for eternity with God in heaven. I doubt that was the case. We assume that when Moses came down from the mountain with the, with the Ten Commandments and the Torah, that the Israelites understood that this new law was the teetering point between their eternal existence in heaven with God or their endless torment in heaven in, or in hell away from God. We read in what we know of salvation into those stories. Many great theologians have made the point that as we look back at the cross in remembrance, the Old Testament people looked forward to it in expectation. And although I'm not qualified to challenge some of these thinkers, I can say that you have a really hard time in the Old Testament finding any evidence that they thought very much about the afterlife at all. There's very, very little scripture talking about heaven, talking about the afterlife. It's hard to find any evidence. Two of my favorite thinkers have both theorized that if we took a time ship back to David's day and we talked like New Testament believers in David's day, they probably would have assumed us to be occultic um, because of our, or probably accused of being witches, of witchcraft, because of our fixation and fascination with the next life. This would have been the realm of the witch of Endor that Saul went to see um, to talk to Samuel. Like, you weren't encouraged to think about the next life, at least not in the scripture. It didn't come up much. Most historians assume that this fixation uh, came, or this, I guess, fixation on this life for the Jews came because they were brought out of Egypt. In Egypt, as a lot of us know, the entire focus was the next life. Everything in Egyptian worship was about setting yourself up just right, usually through the process of death, setting yourself up just right for the next life. That seemed to be the central focus of Egyptian worship. So it wouldn't have been that abnormal for the Jews as they broke out of Egypt to go the other direction, to focus really hard on this life, on life. Moses said, I offer you this day death or life. Choose life. Now, for the most part, this isn't that big of a deal, right? Because we know from the New Testament there is eternity. We know from the New Testament that what happens next does matter. We know that there is a resurrection. So just because the Old Testament didn't focus on these things doesn't mean we shouldn't as followers of the resurrected one because he showed on Easter morning that what happens next absolutely does matter. All true, except it leaves us to wonder and to question if writers like David were not talking about heaven when they cried out for salvation, then what were they talking about? Because there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament about being saved, about salvation. And if their fixation wasn't the next life, then we have to ask, what was their fixation? Let's look at Psalm 6, for scripture for tonight. For the choir director, a psalm of David, to be accompanied by an eight-stringed instrument. For all you people who uh, don't think the music matters in worship, David would argue against you. He wrote his music for particular instruments and to be sung to particular melodies. So that's for free. Oh, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me, 
because of your unfailing love. This is the first four verses, and I have to confess that I'm uh, jumping ahead, getting out of order just a little bit. I don't believe this is a psalm from David's second epic. I think this is a little later in his life, but it fits so perfectly what I want to talk about tonight, all in one psalm that I I had to uh, jump ahead just a little. These first four verses sound so New Testament. Those of us who have spent any time at an altar praying for forgiveness have said words similar to this. Don't discipline me in your anger. Have compassion on me. I'm weak. Heal me. Rescue me. Restore me. Save me because of your unfailing love. These verses perfectly fit our understanding of salvation. It's hard not to read eternal salvation into them. Last week I touched on, just for a second, on how weird it can be to read some of David's Psalms as a New Testament believer. Uh, Sometimes it's humbling, because even though we have the cross as this awesome uh, revelation of God, we still have a hard time matching David's zeal for worship. It can be embarrassing that he didn't even know how much God loved him like we do, and yet he was passionate about worship. Sometimes it's a good thing. Because we can write that same cross into our narrative. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. No matter what happens to us, we can always know. We don't have to question anymore, does God hate me? We, We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us and gave himself for us. Well, this psalm is a psalm where our understanding of New Testament theology can actually make it a little difficult to get into David's art because David continues his psalm like this. For the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? I'm worn out from sobbing. All night I fled my bed with weeping, drenched in my tears. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. Go away, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord has answered my prayer. May all my enemies be displaced and terrified. May they suddenly turn back in shame. For the dead do not remember you who can praise you from the grave. This is David's understanding of what comes next. He says in Psalms 39, You have made me my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you at best. Each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows and all of our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up our wealth not knowing who will spend it. All our busy rushing ends in nothing. In the 30th Psalm, another Psalm where David is crying out for salvation, the poet writes, what will it gain you if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O Lord. What can it gain you if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? The thing I love about this Psalm as David also re, uh, reveals that he used to bargain and, uh, and threaten God, um, which is kind of fun. I know none of us do that. Uh, we're far too sophisticated for that. Real quick, though, has anybody ever played the uh, what would I do if I won the lottery game? Like, when you sit back and think of exactly how would I... Come on, serious, I need an honest answer. How many have ever done that? You, you, yeah, almost everybody. How many of you, the answer to this next question is super important that you be honest. How many of you have ever gone, like, at least either thought it or out loud, I would give a ton to the church just in case God is listening so that he doesn't think you would be greedy if you did win the lottery. Who's done it? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? We've all done it. So we're no different than David. We bargained with God. We've 
We do the same thing. Or I got another one. How about um, I will start giving to the church when I get a raise? Anybody? <laughs> too real? Is that too real? That's too real. Sorry. Um, yeah, so we still bargain with God. But but David um, David goes, goes even farther. He says, what will it gain you if I die, if I sink into the grave? Can my dust praise you? It's like David is threatening God with withheld praise. It's almost like he's saying, I know you love praise, and if you let me die, then you won't get any. Like, um, it's kind of interesting. But David's focus was not on heaven when he cried out for salvation. His, his understanding was when he died, it was done. And yet he cried out for salvation all the time, which brings up some interesting questions. I'm going to ask you tonight, for the, give me the benefit of the doubt. I'm not trying to go backwards in our understanding of salvation. I'm not trying to change anything we believe about Jesus and his resurrection and his saving power. I'm not trying to undo anything that we hold dear. I'm just, I just want to take us maybe a step deeper. Because what I do want to do, especially as I wind up our study of lament, is to look at David's cry for salvation and ask if maybe those of us who are saved can continue to cry out to be saved and maybe from more than just hell. We call the theology of salvation soteriology. Um, it's not a di- necessarily a distinctly Christian study. It, every religion has a soteriology. Uh, it just basically means the, the study of how you get saved in a particular religion. Usually it focuses on three aspects, what I'm being saved from, what I'm being saved to, and, and how that salvation is affected in the life of the believer. So as Christians, we, were being saved, we would say we're being saved from the effects of sin, which is hell. We're being saved to a glorious union with Christ, which we would call heaven. And that, that is affected to the believer by the work done on our behalf on the cross. And actually, if we're honest, that third point, every theological debate, every holy war that's ever been had, every denomination is based on that third question. That's the big uh, touching point is how is salvation affected in the life of the believer? That's kind of where the, all the rub happens in it. But it doesn't matter which camp you wind up in. There, is, there will always be some kind of behavioral um, metric by which, you, by which your, your salvation is measured. I mean, I've been to churches where I was expected to go to rallies to defend the unborn. And I've gone to churches where I was expected to go to rallies to defend the illegal immigrant. And both churches saw that as pro-life, and both churches would question your salvation if you weren't willing to go. It doesn't matter where you fall, there will always be some behavioral ethic, some behavioral metric to measure your salvation. And the reason I think that David might have something to say to our culture is because I don't believe soteriology is dead um, in, our, in our world. I don't think this is just a dusty old theological topic that smart people talk about to make themselves sound even smarter. I think soteriology is wired into the human soul. By all accounts, every, and by pretty much every metric available, religious adherence is dropping in America. I mean, it's, it's going down. Spirituality seems to be holding even. There doesn't seem to be a huge growing number of complete atheists. Spirituality seems to be holding. But anything that we might classify legalism, like anything, any of the classic Christian disciplines, are definitely on the decline. So everything from church attendance to celibacy before marriage to reading your Bible and on and on and on and on. These are all dropping. We might be tempted to conclude that legalism in general and any interest in salvation is also dropping. In fact, I would argue that in America, 
Quite the opposite is happening. I don't believe our religious fervor is declining at all. I just think the source of our salvation is changing. Let me give you a couple examples. Our work. How many of you uh, have ever thought about the fact that the idea of, of choosing a fulfilling career is only about 100 years old in our country? Like in the world, really. The idea of choosing a career that's fulfilling to you is, is in, the, in the, the course of human history is a brand new concept. That's really only about 100 years old. And having any comfort at work at all um, is even shorter than that. Uh, work, it used to be understood that work was going to be awful, that it was going to be terrible. If you go back before air conditioning, before any modern comforts, work was just horrible. And you mostly, you had a very limited option on what you could do based on how you were, you know, the family you were raised in. But today, the comforts of the modern workplace mixed with the vast options affordable, which was an amazing modern freedom, uh, for a long time has suddenly changed. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's, it's the blessing it used to be. Now the wide open field of options um, paralyzes younger people. The idea of the perfect job has become a new soteriology. Millennials aren't looking for a job. They're looking for a career that will fulfill them and save them. And they're terrified of getting it wrong. What if I pick a career I hate? That would be like hell. People are looking for salvation from meaninglessness to meaning and a lucrative lifestyle all by choosing the right thing. If you were raised in a legalistic home, you should talk to uh, millennials about finding a job. They'll say things like, man, I've had like five jobs and none of them stick. None of them felt right. And we can turn up our noses, except how many of us have ever gone, I've been to the altar like five times and I just keep sinning and I, I just can't seem to, to get it. The way they talk sounds religious. It sounds like they're hoping for this religious experience if I can just find the right career. Many of us my age make fun of millennials for having no work ethic. But the truth is we put such an expectation on finding just the right career that the only thing you compare it to is people who scramble and scramble to feel saved, to, to find the right belief, find the right theology. And it's not just career, it's parenting. The different styles of parenting are so varied and so vehement that the only thing you can compare them to is denominationalism. Helicopter parenting, bulldozer parenting, authoritarian parenting, peaceful co-parenting, vaccinators and anti-vaxxers to spank or not to spank. If you don't think I'm right, join a themed parenting Facebook group. And you'll find two things. Number one, you'll find that most of the people on there are as committed and passionate as any Jesuit priest. And the second thing you'll find that is if you make an opinion to the contrary of the theme, you will reach, uh, you'll, it'll, it'll be like a holy war. It'll, the, the, the passion and anger that you'll receive is, is like a holy war. The truth is our culture puts so much pressure on parenting that the fear of getting it wrong is comparable to the fear of hell that previous generations struggled with. The books and the experts are varied and passionate. 
like a theological study. Esther was telling me about a meme she saw this week. The background was very serious, very sweet, obviously not a joke. And it said, be the kind of parent that raises a kid who doesn't need counseling when he grows up. Like there's the perfect right way to do it. Like, like there's a heaven to strive for. It almost sounds like uh, if you were to die on the way home, do you know where you wind up? Like the, the, the weight they put on it. Parents used to have kids to help with the workload and to inherit their stuff. And the goal was to keep them alive and maybe raise a decent citizen who can contribute to society. Today, the fear of not offering your child access to every possible opportunity is crippling. It's a crippling fear. Very few of us brag anymore about, I don't drink, smoke, cuss, gamble, or dance. But that doesn't mean we don't have our legalisms. Go on Instagram and, and look. We brag about our kids' success at sports, the honor roll they made, the lengths that we're willing to go to to make sure that they have an amazing learning experience and lifestyle, and we take pictures of all of it. We don't hesitate to brag about how hard we have to work to provide all this. As if we feel these things are going to get us to heaven. Or if not that, we at least feel like we'll be severely judged by those around us if we don't do the parenting thing just right. Getting married is is almost as bad. It's it's a lot like your job. The idea of, you know, people, you you used to grow up knowing you were going to marry somebody in your town or in your church. And so you might hope that it was Jim instead of Joe, but the idea of Mr. Right wasn't in it. That's, that's really new. I mean, if you think about it, the pond didn't truly get bigger until people started going away to college. And that's only 100 years old. Out of the 6,000 years of human history, that's only about 100 years old that the pond got that big. And then people started going to bars and clubs, and now we've got the whole Internet world to choose from. And in all of these options, the pressure to find the right one is huge. Reinforced, obviously, by Disney and every rom-com ever made. We have to find the right one. And young people feel that pressure. We might be tempted to think this is why they're bailing on marriage completely, that that fewer and fewer people are getting married. People are like, too much pressure. I'm just going to stay single and have the occasional Tinder hookup. But that, you know... But that's not even less pressure. I read a study that the fastest growing market for pornography right now is 20-something females. And in every, stu- every survey taken, the most common answer is, I don't really like it, but I'm terrified of falling behind in the latest techniques and trends. They feel pressure even when they're single. I read, a, I read about an Ivy League school that has a sexuality week every school year where every possible influence floods the school for the kids. And a famous journalist interviewed some kids about it and asked a girl, why do you think this is so popular? Because every kid in the school goes this way. Why do you think this is so popular? And her answer was, most of us here have never failed at anything. We're certainly not going to let sex be the first thing we fail at. How do you fail at that? I, anyway, we used to want to have sex because it was fun. Like, I don't even understand. Now it's a pressure. It's a, I've got to get this just right. 
people used to marry for financial reasons and utilitarian reasons. And love and fulfillment were like a happy surprise. Now people feel this incredible pressure and they work in unbelievably hard to find just the right person. And then they put all of their faith in that person to bring them heaven. And it's no wonder the divorce rate is so high. Even the food we eat is now soteriological. Who would guess we could create denominations based on the food we eat? Organic, locally sourced, fair trade, non-GMO, vegan, paleo, whole food, on, on, on. And rarely does the fervor that we use to describe our preference sound like uh, this is how we prefer to eat. It sounds like evangelism. It's, it sounds like, you know, nobody's like, hey, you should try this. It might, be, it might make you feel better. No, it's like, you're eating that? Do you want to go to hell? Like Jim Gaffigan, I don't know if you guys knew Jim Gaffigan. He's this comedian uh, who's actually a Catholic, great um, comedian. He's got this bit where he talks about going to McDonald's and bumping into somebody he knows. And he goes, oh, no, no, I'm just here to meet a prostitute. Because that would be far less shameful than getting caught eating at McDonald's. I mean, think about what we call it when we eat something we shouldn't. What do we call it? Cheating. We call it cheating. If you're on any kind of a diet, you have the one day when you're allowed to eat whatever you want, you call it your cheat day. That's your cheat day. Cheat used to be a moral word. You cheat on your spouse, you cheat at cards, you cheat your employer, you cheat on your taxes, but cheat always had a moral implication. And we have subconsciously attached morality, this moral word, to eating something yummy because food has become a new salvation. I won't even touch on politics because we all know politics is a religion. But I submit that modern secularism is as demanding and legalistic as religion has ever been. I mean, (laughs) I have a watch that every hour tells me to get up and walk a little bit. Like, that's that's legalism. That's what legalism is. Like, dude, you're going to die. You need to get up and walk. And not that it's not good for me, but... The worst part of this is we don't even know what we're hoping to be saved from and what we're hoping to be saved to. It's just a legalism that's been put on us. Today's culture sticks up their noses at the church for being too legalistic, but I believe secular culture is being crushed by the weight of legalism. People are crying out for salvation, and people are working their butts off to maintain the legalistic lifestyle that modern society demands of them. And it translates to busy. Busyness is the new normal. We scramble and struggle to keep up and the problem is universal. And because of this, preaching and teaching about Sabbath breaking is completely gone. It would be really interesting to see what would happen to the church if we took Sabbath breaking as seriously as we take homosexuality. Because there's a story in Numbers where a man gets caught picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Just picking up sticks. And they grab him, they bring him to Moses, and they go, what should we do? Moses, see, Moses seeks God. God says, put him to death. It's a capital punishment. Every bit is biblically serious as homosexuality. And yet, the American church has decided to attack one and universally ignore the other. And I am pointing no fingers. I am terrible at this. But... We talk about busyness all the time. What we don't talk about is the legalism, the secular legalism 
that drives us to keep doing more and expecting more of ourselves and the fear of not measuring up if we don't get it just right. And this is why I think it's important to point out that David had no theology of heaven when he cried out to be saved. David wasn't asking God to save him from eternal hell. He was asking God to save him from today. I believe one of the reasons the church is losing favor in society is because society is asking for salvation for a million things and we're too often only offering salvation for one. We have a tendency to go one of two ways. They'll, people will come in saying, save me. I've got all these pressures. I'm, I'm sinking under this load. And we go one of two ways. We go, well, I can't really help with most of that, but I can tell you how to stay out of hell. Or we go the other way and we pile on the soteriological load and we preach sermon series on the five things to do to have the perfect marriage or the six ways to raise godly kids. So how do we respond to this? I spent the last four weeks hammering on and on about lament. And here's why I believe that's so important. Our fixation with conversion and the conversion experience and the style of preaching that that engenders is very self-focused. Following Jesus just so you don't go to hell has very, very little to do with Jesus. At that point, Jesus is just insurance. I believe if we're just responding to the threat of hell, then we are closer to God in an angry lament than we are in a sinner's prayer. When we say everything is terrible, but I still believe you're good and I choose to worship you. Shows far more faith than, oh God, I don't want to go to hell, save me. Going to God in lament is an incredible act of faith. Especially when you consider how many people run from God when things get hard. But having said that, as we've been studying lament, I have to say that we still absolutely need to cry out to be saved. We don't go to God and lament just to process our emotions. We, we cry out for salvation. This might be the heart of every lament. Save me. I can't do this. Save me. I'm sinking. Save me. I'm in big trouble here. Save me. I've made an absolute mess of my life. Save me. I believe we need to cry out to God for salvation and not just eternal salvation. We need to join David in his songs and cry out for salvation from today. I suggest that we treat David's salvation the same way we treat New Testament Pauline salvation. Paul said in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace, not by how hard we work. And I'd like to submit that that's always how we're saved. Grace is not just a religious term that refers to how the righteousness of Christ was imputed to the believer via the process of penal substitutionary atonement. That's the way that theologians talk about grace. It makes it real appetizing. No, I think grace means that God likes you. God is for you. It has nothing to do with whether you love your job or whether you parented well or whether you made the right political team or whether you eat just right or have the latest iPhone or go to all the coolest places or your Instagram feed is just as dope as everybody else's or your kids moved up to starting position in their sport. 
Grace means that you don't have to do any of that to have worth, to be accepted, to be loved, to have value. Cry out to God to save you and then accept His grace. Stop trying so hard. Fail. It's liberating. Luther used to say, sin boldly, but believe in Christ more boldly. Go out and completely blow it and then stand up and go, whew, I'm glad God's love doesn't depend on what I do. Okay, don't go out and completely blow it because I told you to and then blame it on me. But God would love you the exact same even if you did. I was talking to Doug this week about a conversation I had sort of overheard 27 years ago where uh, this guy was offered coffee. And I kid you not, he goes, no thank you, I'm saved and sanctified. And I was caught up in the blasphemy of denying coffee, but the guy next to me, under his breath, just as he started to sip his coffee, he goes, whew, sure I'm glad coffee didn't save and sanctify me. And drank his coffee. I know it's just a snide comment, but it stuck with me. If you hate your job and you're beating yourself up because it doesn't seem to have meaning, it's okay. You're not saved by your job. If you're terrified you're going to screw your kids up or you're lamenting because you feel like you already screwed them up, it's okay. Your salvation is not in your parenting skills. If your whole life is wrapped up in eating the right food, fighting the right cause, having the perfect marriage, none of those things are going to save you. God loves you. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to do it just right. His grace is for you. And the beautiful thing about grace is, grace doesn't make you change anything. When grace comes in, it doesn't say, now you have to live the grace lifestyle. Now you have to quit doing all those things because of grace. Grace doesn't make you quit. It's permission to quit some things, but it doesn't make you quit anything. God loves you either way. The change is that if you accept God's grace... You can enjoy the things you're doing. Now you can take your kid to baseball practice because you love baseball. Not because you're afraid you're going to be a terrible parent if you don't. If you want to skip baseball practice, God still loves you. When you have grace in your soul, you can take joy in what you eat, how you vote, where you work, who you're married to. Because you know you're loved by the most important being in the universe. This has to be the heart of our church. When people come struggling to keep up, struggling just to get here, we can't hand them one more plate to keep spinning, one more duty, one more task, one more reason to feel like a failure. That can never happen. We have to be about grace. It's not just people who wander in, it's us. We have to show each other grace and help each other see grace. We have to continually point each other toward grace. When we come in, buried under our load. We've got to make sure we remind each other God loves us. It has nothing to do with the load. It used to be that people went to the world to get away from the legalism of the church. I believe we have to be the kind of church where people come to get away from the legalism of the world. When my mom met my dad, we were a mess. My mom was single. She didn't make much money. I was such a pain in the butt that uh, my grandma, who had been watching me for free, uh, couldn't handle it anymore. And so she kind of kicked me out. So my mom had to pay a babysitter she couldn't afford. We lived in a dump. We didn't eat much. So when my dad stepped in, 
and married my mom. He saved us. There's no doubt. I can't think of any road where my life would have turned out the way it did if he had not stepped into the picture. My dad saved me. But that day at Perry Lake, when I'm underwater, drowning, who I was going to turn out to be as a 46-year-old had nothing to do with it. I needed somebody to pull me out of the water. I think it's the same with our Heavenly Father. Yes, Paul had it right. God is concerned about your eternal salvation. God wants to save your soul. But I think David had it right too. I think God wants to save us from today. I think he wants to pull us out of the water. So I believe we should cry out to God to save us and learn to rest in his unfailing grace. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your table. I thank you that you gave yourself so that we could have freedom. I don't believe you gave yourself to be broken so that so that we could struggle and die under the weight of expectations we didn't even ask for. We cry out for you to save us. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to receive your grace tonight as we as we come to the table, as we take the sacraments into our body. Would you open us up to receive grace from you? Grace that feels at peace even with the load we carry. Grace that remembers that you love us. There's nothing we can do to increase that love. There's nothing we can do to decrease that love. That love is something you have just freely given us. So God, we ask that you would help us to receive